So one morning, I was sitting in a little cafe in central Nigeria, and they put Nescafe in the espresso machine. That was it. It was just too much. The next morning, I was on a plane to Ethiopia, the origin of coffee. The origin, of course, of not just coffee, but life as we know it. I was re returning to my homeland, to everyone's homeland, at least where we were 100,000 years ago. Is it a coincidence that Homo sapiens and Cafe Arabica originated in the same place? I think not. Ethiopia. There's starving kids in Ethiopia. I sneak into Ethiopia. I travel back in time. I search for the origins of the Nile. I search for a missing waterfall. I go on a mad dash across the town of Bahardar, depending on the kindness of strangers. Like my role model, Indiana Jones, I look for the Ark of the Covenant. Do I find it? We'll get to that. But in the end, in the end, I find myself completely and utterly penniless in Ethiopia. But we'll get to that too. I first arrived in Ethiopia by flying directly there from Nigeria in 2012. Flying through the dark of evening, the deserts of South Sudan were just black expanses beneath us, with only the very occasional orange glow of a campfire. As we crossed the invisible borders into Ethiopia, the vague bulk of mountains could perhaps more be imagined than discerned below. And then, all at once we cleared one last ridge, and the twinkling lights of Addis Ababa spread out before us, sparkling like stars reflected in a pool. The second time I flew to Ethiopia, it was via the Air Ethiopia flight from LAX via Dublin, Ireland to Addis Ababa. The flight had been about 50-50 white folks bound for Ireland and Africans bound for Africa. We landed in Dublin. And as soon as the cabin doors on the airplane opened, the replacement cabin crew rushed in and hugged the crew they were replacing as if they had just spent six months in some distant, inhospitable outpost. About 98% of the white folks disembarked at that point. And then the Africans around me seemed to look at me for the first time and smile as if to say, aha, you're one of us. I myself had lived in Ireland about 20 years earlier and had not set foot there since then. So to be so close to my own homeland, sort of, <laughs> and yet not able to actually be there was a bit bittersweet for me as well. On that occasion, I was bound onward from Addis to Kenya, but I had purposely planned a 10 hour layover in Addis so I could go out into the city and meet some friends from the first trip. Only it was not to be, because the immigration agent would not sell me the three-month tourist visa, because I was not there long enough. Even to me, if I'm willing to pay for a three-month visa and spend 10 hours on it, I feel like that's on me. You know, it's a $20 visa. But they were saying, no, you are not going to be here long enough to qualify for a tourist visa but you are not here long enough for a transit visa, which requires a 12-hour stay, so they would give me no visa. So I was stuck in a otherwise totally avoidable 10-hour layover 
in the Addis Ababa airport, uh, unable to get out or see my friends or, or anything. So that was annoying. Which sets us up for the third time I tried to get into Ethiopia. Now, I did succeed on the first time, but not the second time. So this time, I had been traveling with my friend Doug in uh, Tanzania, and he said, oh, let's go to Ethiopia. And so we did, because we had both really enjoyed it before. And so we're at the airport about to go through the immigration passport control area. And it's pretty standard for all countries that they ask you where you're going, what you plan on doing, where you plan on staying. And I had no answers to any of these questions because we had just kind of decided on the spur of the moment and here we were. And given how they hadn't let me in the previous time, I was especially nervous they were going to not let me in again. And then who knows where I'd be stuck because I had, would then have a two, three, three weeks hole in my schedule. So I'm standing there and the line is, you know, slowly getting getting shorter as the people in line go through. And just when there's about two or three people in front of me, I notice the two guys in front of me are speaking Norwegian, which I happen to speak Swedish, which is mutually understandable with Norwegian. To me, Norwegian is like Swedish with a Wisconsin accent. <laughs> and so I start speaking to them in Swedish, uh, asking them, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing here? Um, and so we speak in Swedwegian. They, they apparently were missionaries, which Norway is not known these days for sending missionaries around, but they were. Anyway, we only had, you know, a short conversation before they got called up to the passport kiosk. And then it was my turn. So I nervously go up to the kiosk wondering how I'm going to answer his questions. And he looks at me and as he's just automatically stamping my passport, he says, you're with them, right? And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> And so I managed to sort of accidentally sneak into Ethiopia by accidentally pretending to be a Norwegian missionary. But now, of course, our trouble wasn't over yet because now we had just emerged from the airport in Addis Ababa with nowhere to go and no plans. And well, most airports in the world seem to have Wi-Fi, the Bole International Airport in Addis does not, or at least at that time did not. So my usual go-to of book something online on my phone was a no-go. It was fairly, fairly late. It was dark out. Uh, so there weren't very many people trying to book things in the, like there was hardly anyone in the arrivals area. And so we're kind of like, well, where do we go now? What do we do? And so we asked around a few different people, Doug and I, and I forgot to mention, but so, so Doug Johnson, you might remember from the Nigeria stories, if that name sounds familiar. And if you listened to those earlier than the two years ago, they originally posted. But so we're asking around and the guy booking for Hilton Hotel is there. And we say, no, this is out of our price range, but you know anywhere else? And he says, ah, I know just the thing. And he makes a call and he says, you wait right here in 10 minutes. The owner for this other hotel is coming to pick you up. And we're like, ah. Uh, all right. <laughs> so we wait, 10 minutes go by, and then he gets another call and he tells us, all right, go outside. There is a, um, a black Mercedes waiting for you to take you to this hotel. And we're like, all right. And knowing us, I'm assuming we asked the price at that point and we're assured that it was not too much. It turned out to be $75 a night. Um, 
So we're like, all right. And so we go outside. There's like a glossy black SUV. And we're like, Mercedes. And we're like, okay, we get in. And a very well-dressed, dignified woman is, is driving. And she takes us across town, like half an hour, 40 minutes, to a five-story hotel called the Dizzy Hotel. And a porter named Addis takes our bags. And then a receptionist named Addis checks us in. So, welcome to Addis! And so this was a bit, bit odd way to show up at this hotel, but it actually turned out to be a hotel we really liked. Like, the, um, the staff were all great, the price wasn't bad, the owner was really nice. So, I ended up kind of coming back and forth through Addis a number of times in the rest of the trip because you go somewhere else in Ethiopia and you always have to come back through Addis. And so I kept coming and staying back at the Desi Hotel because it turned out to be very nice. So anyway, we had finally arrived. So I wrote the first draft of the paragraphs you have just heard. And then I went to bed. I'm going to get a whole bunch of mileage out of this music clip. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know how to make it fade out very nicely at the end, so I'm sorry about that. Anyway, so now we are in Ethiopia. What is this place? What does anyone know about Ethiopia? Hey Trent, tell me what you know about Ethiopia. Why is that? And uh, nothing, because it doesn't come up in my scope of thinking um yeah all i know is africans or ethiopians live there and that's about it which is about what i expected trent or any random given person to tell me about ethiopia and to trent's credit he's traveled more than i have in europe and so he he would be more knowledgeable if we asked him about i don't know the history of scotland or any given sports fact ever at all Next, I thought I'd play the same trick on my friend Garland, just to get another potential soundbite to use. But it turns out, so he actually has a travel vlog, that's vlog with a V, as in post it to YouTube in this video. <laughs> but he was actually really fairly well informed about Ethiopia, and it's actually a good jumping off point to start some conversations about Ethiopia. So, Garland, what do you know about Ethiopia? Right, so there we go. Uh, here's what I know about Ethiopia. Some of it may be wrong. <laughs> it is in the north uh, east of the country. Uh, it's uh, very big. I think it's a very big country. Um, Ethiopia. Did it used to be called Eritrea, or is that just another country altogether? Not 100% sure on that. Uh, Ethiopia. Uh, Gabriel Haley, Haley Selassie uh, is from Ethiopia. Now, he is uh, a runner, marathon runner, I think he is. He's a very good one. Uh, but there was also, I think, uh, Haley Selassie, who I think... Uh, used to be the king i think he was the king emperor um and uh he's extremely well regarded in the country ethiopia 
Um, Muslim? They might be a bit Muslim and a bit and a bit Christian at the same time. <laughs> uh, also, possibly sort of Rastafarian, Rastafarianism. That might originate from that place. Um, what else do I know? There was a crisis in the, like the late eight, mid to late eighties, uh, maybe early nineties, like the fuck famine. I think that's I think that's Ethiopia. Or am I thinking of Somalia? Or maybe both. Uh, uh, yeah, I've run out of time now. That's it. Bye. Oh, wow. So that was actually much better than I expected. <laughs> that was really good. Um, so, yes, to answer some of the questions, so, some of them I think I will put off until I plan on addressing them in my narrative plan here. But uh, as far as the relative bigness of Ethiopia, I hadn't really thought about that before, but it is actually fairly big. Looking for something to compare it to, it's kind of an oddball size. It's four times bigger than the United Kingdom in land area, only about a seventh as big as the United States, which is kind of hard to visualize, but it's 160% of Texas. So if you picture how big Texas is, it's just a little bit more than 50% bigger than Texas. It, for Australians, it's the same land area as South Australia. The population is mostly Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, although there's a sizable minority of Muslim, but they're not very intermixed. I think, like, uh, statistically, it's something like 60% Christian and 33% Muslim, but they're not all living intermingled as far as I could tell. It looks like within the Christian parts of Ethiopia, it's overwhelmingly Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, and then I'm assuming kind of the Muslims are similarly very high concentrations in the east bordering Somalia and there was indeed a famine in the 80s, which I think is where their starving children in Ethiopia got emblazoned into our cultural memory of, obviously, you grew up in the UK, I grew up in the United States. It's wherever we were, these the starving children in the uh, Tigrayan highlands in the 80s kind of just got emblazoned in everyone's mind. So that was a thing. As well, Haile Selassie and the Rastafarians. Yes, I have a whole plan to go into more about that, but that is definitely a thing. <laughs> right, okay, so yeah, 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 all right. So just kind of just starting again then. I'm guessing what's happening is uh, you're recording our messages and then you're going to edit them together for the podcast. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing, in fact. Uh, Okie dokie. Uh, I'll just have to put my kind of... Uh, maybe more presentational head on or maybe not or maybe I'll just kind of speak uh, as if I'm just speaking to you privately um, yeah don't really know what to kind of in terms of response to that in terms of the size of Ethiopia and the Eritrea bit uh, what to kind of add more because obviously you're the person in the know um, giving you all the information I know about Ethiopia uh, I suppose one interesting thing that we, I left out in my earlier recordings um, was the look of Africans from the east and the west. So, uh, if I was being, if I was generalising, uh, the Ethiopians uh, and the people on on that east side uh, have a much more skinnier 
uh, maybe even like paler, slightly paler look, but definitely skinnier anyway. And the guys on the west have a sort of a muscular build and a, maybe a darker, a darker uh, skin colour. And I'm kind of using like the, the celebrities or famous people I know to kind of to make this point. So if, if I think about the runner who I talked about earlier, which was who I'm now, who I've now actually looked up and seen his name is not Gabriel Haile Selassie, but Haile Gabriel Selassie. So that's the runner's name. And he's definitely got a skinny frame. And along with Kenya, it's those two countries which are very good at long distance running because uh, of the skinny frames. Uh, whereas on the west side, you might have I don't know, someone like Didier Drogba, who played for my football team, Chelsea, team I support, a uh, muscular guy. And a lot of the lot of footballers you see around the world, especially in Europe, come from Ivory Coast, Ghana, Nigeria, those, those, those type of countries. So yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. And just as you yourself as an American, maybe you know a bit about rap music, which I don't know anything about. But if I was to pick like two rappers, I would say someone maybe like Tupac, from uh, West Africa, and is like someone like a Puff Daddy from East Africa. Does he originally? Is there any kind of? Um, I mean, you can look that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm good for having this conversation actually, because I wouldn't have even occurred to me to try to describe how Ethiopians look. To me, they they look, you know, Ethiopians, but they are definitely distinct from people in West Africa and even down in like Kenya and uh, Tanzania in East Africa, the people look fairly different. Ethiopians have kind of high cheekbones. I think there's always been a lot of trade and cultural links across the Red Sea with the Arab Peninsula. And so I think that's where they get the slightly more, like I said, high cheekbone kind of facial features. And yeah, just you can see there's like a, a little little bit more in, in common with, with the uh, Arab Peninsula, I think. Before I went to Ethiopia, Doug, Doug Johnson told me the women in Ethiopia are so beautiful. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever, Doug. And then I got there and um, they, they really are. They're, they're very, very attractive people over there. So anyway, um, once again, this has been Garland Lowe we've been chatting with from the vlog Modern Grand Tour. Uh, Garland, you want to just uh, tell us briefly the kind of elevator pitch about uh, what your vlog is all about. So my best friend was getting married in Sydney, Australia. So I decided that instead of flying out there, I would take a more adventurous route. So from London, I went uh, through Northern Europe and then through Russia via the Trans-Siberian Railway, as you mentioned, and then uh, took my first flight to Korea and then Japan. And then finally, I got to Australia. So yeah, it was a more adventurous route, I thought, than flying straight from London to Australia, and it certainly was. And uh, I thought I'd bring my camera out and make a little video along the way and see how it went. I think it turned out all right. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a grand adventure. And so it's all, all on YouTube now, right? So if people want to check that out, they can Google... Oh, I keep forgetting what it's called. The Modern Grand Tour? I think, on YouTube? Yeah, just uh, Google or go to YouTube search and either put Modern Grand Tour or uh, my name, which is Garland Lowe. Yeah, or Modern Grand Tour with Garland Lowe. That's the kind of full title of it. Um, yeah, it's about history, about culture. So if you're, 
it's about geeky things like that, uh, not purely about visiting tourist attractions for the sake of taking a photo. So yeah, so if you've got geeky listeners out there who are interested in history and culture of places, then uh, do take a look. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, Garland. That was excellent. Okie dokie. All right. See you later. Bye. All right. From a meta perspective, as you have presumably just noticed, I'm experimenting with inserting more dialogue from other people in kind of a conversational tone here through a really high-tech method of having them send me voice messages and playing them while holding my phone right in front of the laptop uh, microphone. So we're really super high-tech here. And one other, other meta note is now we are at 22 minutes. The previous episodes have been all around 20 minutes, but I think I am just going to absolutely charge on. I feel like I'm fairly new to this, right? But I think a podcast, people just stop and start and listen as long as they need to. I noticed other podcasts are all kinds of links, so we're going to keep on trucking. All right, so now we're going to go into the history of Ethiopia. We're going to go back in time. In fact, I already went back in time as soon as I got there because I left Nigeria in 2012 and then I arrived in Ethiopia after a five-hour flight to a time zone that was two hours earlier than Nigeria, but it was in fact now 2004. I had gone back in time eight years. How I might have done this, one might ask. The Ethiopian calendar is actually different. It, uh, I guess, starts about seven years earlier than the Gregorian calendar we're accustomed to. And because they have a different uh, day for New Year's, which I don't know if it's the same every year in correspondence with our calendar, but this year anyway, that's September 11th. And so I arrived in 2004, which my friends informed me was a really good time to buy stock in the Apple Corporation. Another confusing cultural difference is that the clock itself was different as well. Whereas you are probably accustomed to a clock that starts at midnight and goes 12 hours until noon and restarts. Ethiopians reckon time starting at 6 a.m. and then restarting at 6 p.m. So what you think of as noon, they probably still call noon, but it's 6. I don't know if they use a.m. or p.m. But so this, this caused some confusion. I remember when I was returning to the Desi Hotel from um, Michaela, I, I called in to, to, to have them pick me up at the airport, and I said I'd be at, I don't know, 2. And they said, oh, is that local time? And I was thinking versus, you know, time zones. I'm like, of course, yeah, yeah, it's local time. And they're like, wait, 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 no, it's not local time as in the sense that 2 means 8 a.m. It's, I don't know, 8 a.m. So it's potential for some serious confusion with the, with the clock difference. But now starting with actual history, history. So the history of Ethiopia goes really far back. The Queen of Sheba, whom you have probably heard of in the Bible, uh, comes and visits King Solomon and brings a bunch of gifts, including honey, which is a testament to the the history of beekeeping in Ethiopia that goes way back, because Sheba was substantially large parts of Ethiopia. 
basically was Ethiopia, as much as you can say that. It also had bits of Yemen. But so the queen, Queen Sheba, was, was a queen of Ethiopia, goes to King Solomon in the Bible. And then the Ethiopians will tell you that she came back with two things. One, she somehow got the Ark of the Covenant and took it with her to Ethiopia. And as well, they allege that some shenanigans went on and she was pregnant with King Solomon's son, I think. And so, therefore, her firstborn child was actually a son of King Solomon and an emperor of Ethiopia. And so the emperors of Ethiopia, going all the way on down to Haile Selassie, all trace their lineage directly back to King Solomon, which I think there's a general consensus that kind of royal genealogies may involve some fudging somewhere here or there. But in general, it is said and commonly believed in Ethiopia that the emperor is a descendant of King Solomon. And speaking of the emperor, so Ethiopia had a monarchy as well as basically feudalism up until 1975 which is fairly late in the game for feudalism to still exist. I think the Ethiopian noble titles were some interesting sounding titles. I like, I like them. <laughs> like the Ethiopian equivalent to a count is a Dejamach, and a duke is a Ras, a king is a Negus, and there were other the, the rulers of some of the larger provinces were kings, and then the emperor was the Negasu Nagast, if I'm saying that right, the king of kings, basically. And for the Star Trek nerds out there, you may recall that the Ferengi in Star Trek, the ruler of the Ferengi is called the Grand Negus, so they're using the, they've borrowed the Amharic word for king there, and as well the Ferengi themselves Ferengi is the Amharic word for foreigner, which was interesting because when I was out in the villages and uh, the kids would see me go by, they'd all be like, Ferengi, Ferengi. And so I'm picturing them seeing me as, you know, Quark from Deep Space Nine with the bulbous forehead and greedy nature, which I thought was kind of comical. And the other kind of, while we're on this note, the kids would also chase me around saying, China, China. Because, I, spoiler alert, I, look, I do not look Chinese at all, but for the Ethiopian children, I guess some of the few foreigners that would get out there in the remote areas would often be Chinese engineers. So they think that China is a word for foreigner, and all of us people that aren't Ethiopian all look the same. So I look Chinese to them. But yeah, so the Ethiopians and their emperor, which didn't necessarily need to be a man. The immediately preceding Haile Selassie was Empress Zuditu, which Wikipedia tells me was, is the most recent empress in history, which obviously is kind of hashing between the Queen of England, but I guess she's no longer an empress. But anyway, so in 1930, or prior to that, she recognized as heir apparent the Duke of the House of Tafari, 
i.e. the Ras Tafari, uh, Haile Selassie, and then, and so then after she died, the Ras Tafari, Haile Selassie, was coronated as the new emperor. And so during the next 40 years, he proved to be relatively enlightened, pushing lots of good reforms in for the Ethiopian state, making some prominent speeches in the UN, and he was involved in the League of Nations. He was kind of involved in the collective security uh, concept, which kind of fell apart when uh, collective security did not kick in to save him when Italy invaded Ethiopia. So it was kind of... He was, he was involved in the, the predecessor of the UN and had the good ideas that would have worked if people, if everyone else had adhered to them. So there's a lot, there is a lot to admire about uh, Haile Selassie. And as well, obviously you've recognized the word Rastafarian in here by now. So the Rastafarian movement was around this time just starting to kick off. I don't pretend to be an expert, but having read up on it just prior to this. It was kind of just sort of start starting to, to come into existence in the 1930s. And then I think in the 1950s and 60s, it really solidified and took on the name it has now. And I think part of the reason is the Rastafarian movement was among African diaspora in Jamaica. And for them, at that point, most of Africa was colonized, you know, being held down by the European boot except Ethiopia was standing proudly unconquered, which we'll get to, <laughs> but, um, but so also being as the Rastafarians was a kind of Christian related movement and Rastafari Haile Selassie traces his lineage right back to King Solomon and one of his titles was the Lion of Zion. And so it really fit right into their religious beliefs that not only is here we have a really inspiring African leader, but he is literally connected to the lineages in the Bible. And so that really made it easy for them to, to embrace that. And so Haile Selassie was not a Rastafarian, but he did visit Jamaica. I think he did kind of, kind of appreciate their enthusiasm. So, so yeah, and then on the subject of Ethiopia being unconquered or not, so as you're saying with, with Garland, um, basically it was not conquered during the, the scramble for Africa. In 1938, the Italians invaded Ethiopia and they were there for five years. Uh, Haile Selassie, in the meantime, went to exile in England, returning to Ethiopia five months before they were able to recapture Addis Ababa. So it's not like he even just sauntered in when the fighting was over. He was there for the prior five months and then re-entered Addis Ababa five years to the day from when he had left Ethiopia. And so this five-year period, yes, technically Italy conquered Ethiopia, but five years isn't really long enough to to do much cultural damage, I think. Whereas most other countries in Africa very unfortunately kind of had their own cultures kind of paved over by the European colonists. Uh, Ethiopia is very culturally intact. 
kind of the only real remaining artifact of the Italian occupation is that you can usually find pasta in places, which is good because the Ethiopian cuisine, it's very good, it's very interesting. It's primarily this sour millet called taff that's been fermented into a kind of crepe-like bread called injera. And it's it's good, but if that's what you're suddenly eating every day, your body kind of kind of craves something familiar. So what I end up doing is typically having injera for lunch and spaghetti for dinner or something like that. Typically have spaghetti once once a day. And so that was that was kind of good that that was there. And then there's a few other vague things. Town squares are called piazzas, a little bit of Italianisms like that. But by and large, so Italy, I mean, I basically consider Ethiopia basically unconquered. But yeah, so Haile Selassie was very well respected in the international community and abroad and definitely did bring some reforms into Ethiopia. I got to see one of his palaces. It's an ethnographic museum now, so I got to see a bunch of exhibits about him and things he'd done and see his bathroom. <laughs> He had a nice bathtub. But despite, so I was surprised thinking I've only ever heard really glowing reports about him. The Ethiopians actually, I feel like I got the impression, didn't really remember him as fondly as the rest of us would think. Because remember, he was the head of a feudal monarchy, which even with an enlightened head, is still a feudal monarchy, which when you're getting into the 1970s, I feel like feudalism starting to be a bit passe and out of style. So there was increasing resentment about that going into the 70s. And then I strongly suspect, because everyone was doing this these days and considering what direction it went after that, that maybe the Soviet Union was involved in a little bit of you know, finagling to, to make things happen, fomenting, because then in 1975, a military junta called the Derg uh, overthrew Haile Selassie's government and imposed their new Soviet Union-supported military government. They started shooting lots of nobles, and Haile Selassie was strangled in bed. And so that was the end of that. And so this military regime then brought about an era known as the Red Terror. Uh, Doug and I toured the Red Terror Museum on one of our first days in Addis, and it was, as one might imagine, fairly sobering, involving things such as shelves full of skulls of people exhumed from mass graves. And, I mean, it was definitely a somber museum already, but then the docent who happened to be there was this very nice, soft-spoken gentleman who said that he had been arbitrarily arrested at the age of 15 by the Derg and held and tortured for seven to eight years after that for no particular reason, and they'd, you know, removed his fingernails and all these terrible things. And so to really have a person telling us absolutely firsthand what it was like was, was really, really, really poignant. And, and so the, the dirge 
the Derg eventually crumbled. In 1991, the same, also suspicious, the same time that every other Soviet puppet regime was falling over, the, the Derg fell over as well. A number of, of Derg officials were arrested or even executed, but the top level people escaped to Zimbabwe. And the, the docent was, seemed almost close to tears when he talked about how the guys responsible for all this horrible stuff basically got away scot-free. But yeah, so the Dirk being terrible, resistance built up against them. And so Ethiopia fell into a sort of civil war in the 80s, which also between the civil war and the Dirk just, you know, Communist regimes tend to either have intentional famines or just cause them because command economies, spoiler alert, don't really work. But so, the, again, the context of the famine in Tigray in the 80s was during this communist regime and during a civil war. So there's, there's a lot going on there. But so the understanding I have about the civil war is Eritrea, which had at some time in the past been a separate country, but then... Haile uh, Selassie actually basically annexed it. And so they were leading part of the rebellion against the Derg. And when in 1991, the, the rebels won, the rebel tanks were coming into Addis Ababa. And then basically Eritrea said, all right, we won. We overthrew this horrible regime. And guess what? Do whatever you want. We are leaving. We are no longer part of your country. And so Eritrea has been a separate country ever since then, which unfortunately hasn't really worked out terribly well for the Eritreans because it has been a dictatorship since then. And as well, it has been at a state of war with Ethiopia most of the time since then. So the border has been closed. The border having previously been opened and people traveling, traveling freely, I talked to a number of people who had relatives, other parts of their family that happened to have been caught on the other side of the border and have been in Eritrea ever since. So that was a really kind of unfortunate thing that happened as well. And this brings us to more or less the present. And I promise I'm almost done here, but I wanted to ask Addis, who you may remember was the receptionist at the Desi Hotel. I wanted to ask her a few questions to get a local perspective on some things. So I thought I would start out with one question that has been burning on my mind ever since I met her, really, which is, Addis, your name is Addis, the city is named Addis. Um, can you can you explain this? Hi, Chris, how are you doing? How are you? Okay, let me answer for you about the, your question, the relation between my name, Addis Alam, and the city, Addis Ababa. So uh, let me start from my name. Before, you know, before I was born, before I was born, the new government, the new system, it took the power from the Derg Rahim. As we know, this Derg was a socialist government. So the new system or the new party defeated the Derg Rahim and it controlled the power. That is the PDRE. That is uh, the People Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. It controlled the system. So that time my family were, uh, they called my name Addis Alam. So that means uh, a new system, a new government, a new leader is coming to power. So they want to generalize every world, it is everything. So, so uh, my parents is so world means like a new uh, world, it is everything. So they want to generalize my name and they say Addis Alam. 
that's new word lead, just simply to explain, to clarify you. So word lead, it, it have a lot of things. So that's why then they say new word lead. My name, Andy Salam. When we are coming to the city, Addis Ababa, the wife of uh, Emperor Minilik II, the wife, uh, her name is Impressed Aitu, when she's away for military campaign, she got a flower. That's a new flower. So she said, oh, I got a new flower. Then she said, Addis Ababa, she said. That means a new flower. So this Addis Ababa, the name came from after that, she said. All right. And uh, that was all I got from, from Addis the um we were using facebook messenger which cuts people off after a minute which is a bit awkward but thank you addis for that and so now i think this episode is already immensely long i think we will wrap up now that we have covered the history up until now and then next episode we can have more about uh, my actual adventures within ethiopia so thanks for listening and uh, Tune in next time for I'll probably hopefully be getting to Bahardar in the north uh, west of the country and we'll cover more about yeah the cu culture of you know being on the ground there <laughs> so so yes and I'll be looking for the the origin of the Blue Nile and as well as having some adventures up in that direction <laughs>